child of the one true king. Do you grasp all that entails that when you say, I'm a child of the one true king? Does it, you grasp what it means to be a child of God? In the Old Testament, people are trying to grasp that and get that understanding and, and trying to figure out how do we keep God before us. And so they started making, making statues and images, trying to say, this is God. And, and God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And God said this in the Ten Commandments. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. They were trying to figure out God. And trying to figure out God, they were also making idols and worshiping idols and trying to say, well, that's a God and this is a God and making all kinds of statues. And God said there should be no idol, there should be no image, there should be nothing on earth that even comes close to picturing me. There's nothing. God never allowed His people to draw pictures and make idols and make statues to try to describe Him because all of them would fall short. No idols, no pictures, nothing. In the Bible, God reveals himself through his names. Because there's no, there's no picture, there's no image, there's nothing. We can create this say, well, that's what God looks like. And so he reveals himself through his name. And since the beginning of time, man has tried to create some kind of image to say, what does God look like? Dr. Tony Evans, author and preacher, says God isn't necessarily who we want him to be. He is who He is, not who you or I want Him to be or choose to define Him as. So if you're going to know who God is, you'll have to let Him define Himself simply because He is not, I am who you say I am. He is Jehovah Yahweh the Lord, I am who I am. And Evans continued on and said, God will often allow us to be in a situation with no possible solution. This is so we can discover that He is our solution. He lets us hit rock bottom in order for us to learn that He is the rock at the bottom. He'll put us between a rock and a hard place, a situation that seems confusing, incongruent, and chaotic, and He'll often do this when He's getting ready to reveal something new about Himself to us, just as He did with Moses. When God wants to show you a side of Him you've never seen before, He usually does it in the middle of a mess in the middle of a problem, in the middle of a circumstance, like a burning bush. In the Bible, the most commonly used designation for the term God in the Hebrew is the term Jehovah. It's actually used over 6,800 times in the Old Testament Scriptures. There are eight different Jehovah names used to refer to God in the Bible. So when you read through our English language and we just see the term God, we're not sure which Jehovah it's actually referring to. And so the names, those eight names reveal who God is and what He will do or what He wants to do for His children. And I think you would agree with me that names are important. They're highly important. Uh, they're so important that today, depending on which article or which website or which book you go to, there's somewhere over 170 million different baby names. And I imagine there's new ones being created as we're here this morning. As some parents come up with something creative and put a couple names together, a couple letters together, and say, that will be my child. Psychologists say that what you call your child may 
psychologically affect your child's behavior. I know Brian and I took it very serious when we were naming our children, Luke, Caleb, and Lily Grace. We looked at what's the meaning of those names, and it's amazing how much they live up to kind of what their name is and how their personalities. And they also warn you as parents, when it comes to like nicknames, be very careful. Because if you call your child things like ugly, they may start believing that. Or you start calling your child like, hey, dummy, what are you doing? They may start believing that. And sometimes some nicknames or even names and jest can start to label a child and it can affect them psychologically. Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is more desirable than great riches. In other words, your name is so much more important than the money that you make because your name describes who you are. I mean, just think about some Bible names. Methuselah. That's a fun one. Or Tigapilzier. Can't hardly say that one. Jehoshaphat, Nebuchadnezzar. Could you imagine if their mom started stuttering when they called them for dinner? They probably would starve to death just trying to get those names out of their mouth. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I always like those, but wouldn't it just be easier and make you appreciate Mike, Bill, and John? I mean, it's so much more simple what we have today. What's in a name? At a graduation ceremony some years ago at, at, the, at Yale University, the speaker spoke for 30 minutes on each letter in their name. 30 minutes on Y for you. 30 minutes on the letter A for ability. 30 minutes on the letter L for leadership. And 30 minutes on the letter E. Could you imagine a graduation ceremony going on for two hours? After two boring hours of this, a couple of the guys who were graduating, one said, can you believe that guy talked for two hours on the name Yale? All I wanted was my diploma. The other guy said, yeah, just be glad we didn't graduate from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Names are important. They have something to do with who we are and our character. When we named Centerpoint Christian Church, we chose that name very specifically because we are on this side of town in the center of a growing area and teaching people to put Christ at the center of their life. So there's meaning behind our name. What do you think about when someone says the name Judas, for instance? What comes to your mind? My mind comes to the idea of traitor. What do you think about when the name Thomas comes to mind? My mind goes to the Bible, Thomas and Bible, as a doubter. What do you think about when you say Bill Gates? You think of wealth or the computer guru that he is? Beethoven. Automatically, you start to think about music. Shakespeare. You start to think about poetry. Or for some of you, think about the F you got in English. You're like, I'm glad I'm out of that. But every kind of name triggers a thought or a meaning for us. What do you think about when you hear the name God. For Jesus, he describes it in Matthew 6, 9, when he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. So when he heard the name God, he referred to him as Father, as Daddy, as Abba. In the Bible, your name reflects your character. Take, for instance, Jacob. His name actually means heel snatcher. Kind of makes you think about a late night t TV salesman in the Old Testament or something. The heel snatchers now on television. I mean, when you dealt with Jacob, you kind of want two lawyers on each side because he was a fighter. God wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32 and changed his name to Israel. He struggled with God, and he's known as God's fighter. The nation of Israel, God's fighter? Would you say the name fits? Even today, the struggle continues in that region, in that area. Abraham was known as the father of many nations because what? He's the father of the Jewish nation and the Arab nation. And so the name fixed. 
Simon in John 14, 2 says, You will be called Cephas, Peter, which means rock. And Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. The name fit. Saul, the murderer, his name was changed to Paul. And Paul then, the great missionary, God changed his character and changed his name. And he wrote over half the New Testament and planted many churches and helped the gospel spread. You know, if you're a Christian, the Bible tells us you have a new name. You're a Christ follower. You accepted the, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you're in his blood. Revelation 2 tells us, to him who overcomes, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it. And Revelation 3 says, to him who overcomes, I will write on him my new name. We have a new name as a Christ follower. The old hymn says there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story, a sinner has come home. So when you're in Christ, you have a new name. It's called Christian. So what do you think about when you think about the name of God? Evans went on and said God's name is like a key that unlocks the treasure God has in store for you. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. His name alone is a fortified place offering freedom and security and peace. The psalmist David says in Psalm 111, He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. One name by itself cannot fully represent God's majesty and God's power. His name describes who He is. One name alone can't fully tell us all we need to know about this great person that we refer to as God. He is so much more than just one single name. So this summer, we're going to spend eight weeks looking at names of God, looking at the Jehovah names of God. I think it's important for us to know the names of God because then when we know who God is, we'll have a better understanding of what He wants to do for us and in us as His children. They're highly important names. Eight names of God. Here's what we're going to look at. Jehovah Jireh. This is today. The Lord will provide. We're going to get the idea behind that name. I encourage you, you can go deeper with it. Jehovah Shalom is the Lord our peace. And understanding what that means, that when you understand God is the God of peace, what does that mean for our life? Jehovah Roy, the Lord our shepherd. How he wants to shepherd us and guide us and direct us. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Rafi, the Lord our healer. Some of us need to make sure we don't miss these messages to understand what does it mean that he provides and he's the God of peace and that he's our banner and he's our shepherd and he's our healer. We need to understand these concepts of who God is. Jehovah Shema, the Lord who is there. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord of righteousness. And Jehovah Makadeshkim. I think I got that one right. At least I'm close. Some of these names in the Old Testament are so tricky to say. The Lord who sanctifies. But each and every one of these names are packed with meaning, packed with us understanding our relationship Packed with who we are in God. God started out as a no-name God, so to speak. Exodus 6, 3, he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, which is the El Shaddai, which is a whole other set of Hebrew names, but not as Jehovah. When the earth was created, God did not reveal himself as Jehovah. When the earth became corrupt, God chose a man by the name of Abraham and a nation, the Jews, through which he could preserve the purity of his name. And God introduced himself first as El Shaddai, God 
Almighty. Secondly, he introduced himself then as Jehovah. And God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them out of captivity. Let them out of slavery. Moses said, well, who am I supposed to tell them who sent me? Because Moses wasn't sure what his name was. And God says, just tell them that I am sent me. I am. Pharaoh was revered as a, as a God among his people. And God is just telling Pharaoh, just tell them that I am sent me because God's telling Pharaoh, listen, I am sent me because I was God before you and I'm going to be God after you and I will continue to still be God. So he says, I am. Not I was, not I may be, not I will be, but he says, I am. A basic name of who he was. We need to know God. We need to know who he is so we can know what he can do. We need to know who Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the God who supplies. Paul understood this. When Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, and he writes a letter, it's called Philippians, in, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so he's referring to God, the great supplier. Some of you today are here and you need to know that God provides. Some of you are going through problems in your marriage, maybe problems in your home, problems of family, problems of finances, business, health. Our God, El shall die. God Almighty wants to provide for you. He has the ability to face Pharaoh. He has the ability to part the Red Sea. He has the ability to make the sun stand still for Joshua. He had the ability to close the mouth of the lions for Daniel. He has the ability to do whatever needs to be done. God didn't cease His power at the end of the first century. He wants to provide for you and me. He's just as powerful today as He was, has ever been. Do you know how strong He is? Do you know His power? See, when you say the name Beethoven... What opens up? Your mind about music. When you say the name Bill Gates, you think about bank. You think about computer. It opens up your mind. When you say the name Shakespeare, it opens the door to literature. But when you say the name Jehovah Jireh, and sometimes, and I hope we will learn to even pray these names, when you say Jehovah Jireh, that opens the doors of heaven and for us to get our needs met, for Him to provide for us, because that name opens the door of supernatural power and supernatural provision so you can get her needs met according to His riches and glory. David understood this. Psalm 34, 1, David said, I will bless the name of the Lord at all times. In Psalm 20, verse 7, he says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When he's saying that, he's being chased from being set free. He's being chased. He says, my God's going to provide. Psalm 29, 2, he says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. Psalm 34, 3, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He's saying, God provides. Let us exalt him. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. The Lord will provide what you cannot provide. Stop and think about that with me for a moment. The Lord will provide what we are not able to provide. God provides the worms for the birds, but He doesn't put the worm in the, in the bird's mouth. The mama actually goes and hunts it out and brings it to the babies, and they have to put it in their own mouth. God will provide. You can sit on your back porch eating and drinking and studying your Bible and thumping your Bible and thinking, oh, the Lord's going to provide for me, but, God, but God's not going to do what you can and what you ought to do for yourself. 
He's going to provide what we are not able to provide for ourselves. You do all you can do and all you ought to do, and then God will do what alone only He can do. See, because God provided for your needs before you even knew you had them. You ever stop and think about that? God thought about what you and I are going to need here to function on this earth before we even needed them. Before you were hungry, God provided animals and plants that produce food for us. Before you were ever thirsty, God provided more water than any of us could possibly ever drink. Before you ever dreamed of having transportation, God put oil and other minerals in the earth so that one day we would discover that they can make automobiles go and make airplanes fly and make boats go across the water. Before you were ever cold, God put wool on the backs of sheep and cotton in the plant fields so that we can have clothes. Is that not an amazing God to know they're going to need this when I create mankind? Before you were ever sick, God created medicines for the cures that we're going to need. Some pharmacists didn't come up with the idea. God put it together and he gave us the brains to be able to figure out how to use what he's put on this earth. And before you ever sinned, God provided redemption through the cross of Jesus Christ because God provided for our needs before we ever knew that we even needed them. In Genesis 13, God gave Abraham the land of Israel and promised that his seed would be as numerous as the dust. How could that happen when Abraham didn't even have a son? In Genesis 15, God told Abraham he was going to have a son. And in Genesis 16, Abraham at the age of 99 and Sarah at the age of 90 decided, you know what, this God who's supposed to be providing is not doing such a good job, so let's figure out our own system. So Sarah told Abraham, Abraham, the only way we're going to have an heir was that you need to go spend time with my my handmaiden. Sarah gave her Hagar, and so Abraham and Hagar conceived a child together. Because they wanted to take it into their own hands. They were trying to be Jehovah Jireh. They thought, well, God's not providing, we'll take care of it. Jehovah Jireh doesn't need our help. He needs us to do what we can do, and He'll provide what we're not able to provide for ourselves. We need to know that who God is, Jehovah Jireh. Hagar then gives birth to Ishmael, and Sarah becomes jealous, and Abraham and her both kicked out. Some 6,000 years later, the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael, they're still at each other's throats. When you see all the turmoil going on in the Middle East, it goes back to this account in Scripture. God doesn't need our help. What we can't do, Jehovah Jireh can do. Jehovah Jireh has no boundaries, has no limits, has no restrictions. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 22 as I just quickly bust through this account of Scripture. God told Abraham, he said, now you have the son. And and you have that son not in the way I had planned to provide, but he said, take your son to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him there as a sacrifice. That raises some problems. It raises some contradictions. Abraham suddenly finds himself in a mess of contradictions in Genesis 22. He's in a theological contradiction because God's instruction goes against the promise of a future nation and against God's mandate not to kill. He's like, wait a minute, God, you promised me a future nation, and here's my son, and now you want me to sacrifice him, and God, you're the one that said do not kill, and now you're telling me to kill. And so he's in a theological uh, mess. He's in an emotional contradiction as his faith now collides with his affections. It's his only son. And God says, I want you to sacrifice that son. 
Could you imagine the emotions of that? Wait a minute, God, you want me to take my son up on that mountain? You want him to be the sacrifice? He's facing a social contradiction because he'll never become known as a great name in a community if he kills a son. So he has a son, he takes over, becomes great, and then he's great. But if his son's dead, there's no way for me to have that greatness. He's in a relational contradiction. Could you imagine when he goes to his wife and says, uh, Honey, God's plan is that I take our son and take him up on the mountain and he's going to be the sacrifice? I don't think that would be healthy for the marriage. Could you imagine? What was his response? Genesis 22 lays out the response. Verse 3, Abraham rose early and obeyed. He didn't gripe. He didn't complain, and he didn't question. He didn't get up and, oh, my goodness, God, is you really going to have me do this, God? Well, i got to take my son, God. Come on, let's do something else, God. I don't want to do that. He didn't go through that poor me syndrome. He got up, and he said, God, all right, I'm going to obey. Verse 8, he told Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb. Very interesting when you study that part of the Scripture because God had never told him he's going to provide a lamb. His faith is God's going to provide something. We're going to walk through it. Verse 9, Isaac, he's about 25 years old. He's bound on the altar by his aged father. Say their goodbyes, embrace one another. And verse 11 says, but the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham. I mean, taking the knife, ready to sacrifice his son. It's amazing to think what was going through his mind in that. Could you imagine going, what am I going to do? And then he looks off in a thicket and there's provision and a ram for him. It's, a, it, it's, such, a, 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 it's such a typology. The pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus is what we're seeing here as we see this account in Scripture of Abraham ready to sacrifice his one and only son. It was Abraham's only son. They went up on a mountain. The son carried the wood on his own back and God provided the lamb, the sacrifice. Isaac went willingly. You think about it for a moment. Uh, Abraham's an old man. Isaac is young in age. Isaac could have said, God, or Dad, I think you're crazy. And Dad, I am not carrying a wood up the mountain. Not doing it. He could have said, I'm not putting it on my back. And his dad could have said, son, you need to go. Let's go. And it would be like me trying to chase Caleb around the room right now. I can never catch the kid. And his dad would have never caught him. He would have just took off running down the street. And Abraham would have been like, God, I tried, but my son doesn't want to. No, his son willingly said, all right, Dad, I'm going to listen puts the wood on his back, goes up, allows his dad to bind him. He could have wrestled his dad to the ground. He could have knocked his dad over the head of the rock. He could have took one of the pieces of wood and cracked him in his head. I'm not doing this. No, he willingly went and was willing to be the sacrifice. Get the typology there. Because Jesus went willing to the cross for you and me. God said, Jesus, you're my son. You're going to go to the cross. You're going to die. And you're going to die for the, for the nations of people to come and to to cover their sin. And Jesus could have said, I'm running, I'm leaving. Jesus prayed, is there another way? God said, this is the way. Abraham called that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. It's hard for us to put ourselves even in that story or even in that account of, of Abraham taking his one and only son and take him up on the mountain to sacrifice his life. And it's hard to put ourselves in the account that God gave us Jesus, His one and only Son, to be a sacrifice for you and me. But God has provided for us. See, sometimes God puts us in the situations that only He can solve. You and I could not solve our sin problem. 
You and I cannot solve our sin challenge. We could not be good enough or perfect enough or holy enough. It's impossible. And God said, I will give you my one and only son. God supplied all of our needs. And God has already supplied our needs this morning. And God wants to supply your needs for any solutions you have going on today or tomorrow or answers or questions or challenges you face next week or the week after or next month or, or next year. He wants to supply all those needs. He has a solution to our problems today. We just need to know who He is. We need to know that He's a provider and we need to trust Him to provide and do His work when we go to Him in humble obedience. And that's when we find out what He can do. Will you trust God as your provider today? Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for showing us through Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, what a provider you are. Thank you, God, for showing us through Jesus that you provide for us in such a way that you sacrifice your own son to be our sacrifice on the cross. God, help us to look to you as provider, the one who will take care of the needs, our daily needs, our daily struggles. Thank you, Lord, for providing things such as food and water, shelter. Thank you for providing health. Thank you for just for jobs. Thank you for daily stuff we receive every single day that sometimes, Lord, we forget they're provided by you who so richly bless us. But most importantly, Lord, thank you for Jesus and the provision of his sacrifice on the cross. God, as we come to this time to receive communion and celebrate what you've done, help us to be thankful for the provision of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray in this room, if there's someone here who's not received Jesus, maybe today would be their day to accept Jesus, who you provided, to be our way to salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.